And I want to welcome everyone to the first narrative med medicine rounds of the fall season. Uh, my name is Deepu Gauda. I'm a general internist here at Columbia, and I have a couple roles here. Uh, one is I'm the director of clinical practice in the program in narrative medicine, uh, where we really think about how we can take this work of narrative medicine and translate it into clinical practice. What is, what is this attention to developing one's presence, uh, listening closely to one another to be able to appreciate stories, how does that actually impact the way that we take care of patients? Um, so I'm very involved with that. And, uh, and I'll also direct a course at the medical school called Foundations of Clinical Medicine Tutorials, which is the course in the medical school where the students learn how to do a physical exam and, uh, and learn how to take a history at the bedside. And, and if you've kind of followed our curriculum over the past uh, really 10, 15 years, you'll see how much the narrative medicine work has really impacted our curriculum and the way that we think about training physicians and health professionals. The idea of listening carefully to represent the stories that we are engaged in in our world through writing and through other creative forms has really, is really embedded throughout the entire four years of the curriculum. Starting in the very first year where all the students have a required narrative medicine course and uh, Ben Schwartz, who you'll meet soon, teaches one of those courses to our students. Um, and throughout the entire four years, the students are engaged in reflection. Um, they're regularly reflecting on their education, reflecting on their clinical experiences, and thinking about how their relationship with their patient care is influencing and changing uh, their own growth as human beings. So it's very much a, a, a part of our, the, the fabric of the way that we, we, we train students. So it is fall and it's a time when uh, the curriculum is new again and we have a whole new batch of students who are coming in as first years. And I'm happy to say some of our first year students are actually graduates of our master's program in narrative medicine. Um, and it's also when the nursing students come and the, the students in public health arrive. And it's a moment I think to, to think about uh, you know, the anticipation of what we're about to learn in this season. And I ask us to reflect on a few things just amongst ourselves and that is, you know, this season, what, what will we be engaged in and what will we learn about our, about our worlds? What will, what will we learn about one another? And how will that knowledge of our world, of ourselves, and one another, how will that knowledge uh, inspire us to take action in the world? And these are really the foundational questions that we are engaged in in narrative medicine. And I hope that you will continue this conversation with us uh, at Narrative Medicine Rounds over the next few months. On November, uh, October 4th, uh, we welcome Lucy Brock Broido, who is a poet and the director of poetry for Columbia School of the Arts. And she will lead us on a conversation uh, really celebrating the poetry of Max Ritvo. And on no November 1st, we welcome back Elizabeth Rosenthal to Narrative Medicine Rounds. Uh, Dr. Rosenthal is a physician. Um, she's also a veteran journalist who was previously at the New York Times and now uh, is working with uh, Kaiser Health News. And she's written really provocative and moving pieces about healthcare, and she'll be with us to talk about the cost of healthcare in November. Uh, ben Schwartz will introduce our speaker tonight, uh, Bob Mankoff. Ben is a graduate of Columbia College, graduate of the School of Medicine at Columbia. 
But at some point during his training and practice, he realized that his true love was in illustration and in comics. Um, and he took a narrative medicine class, actually his last year of medical school, that really impacted the way he thought about uh, his art and his craft. And he made the very brave decision to leave the path of clinical practice and to try his hand at being a comic, a professional uh, illustrator. And, uh, and it's worked out magnificently for him. He is a staff uh, comic at The New Yorker. And he's also continued being involved at this intersection between medicine and art. Um, he's been engaged with the Department of Surgery. He's done work with our Department of Ophthalmology. And he teaches a class on comics and storytelling to our first year students. And in an interview uh, uh, that was published, Ben said, what he tries to do with his students is to think deeply about complex situations, to identify key features that are occurring in those situations, and then figure out ways to put words and pictures to those events. And in doing so, he says, the students become better listeners. They become more empathic towards the people they engage with, and I would say become better physicians. Ben has been featured in the forthcoming documentary by Ken Brown titled Why Doctors Write. And I have to say that uh, Ben's work has been a powerful force in really challenging the way that we are thinking about narrative medicine, asking us to expand the ways that we represent our world to really embrace uh, art and illustration and comics in a new way. Um, and he's continued to, to do powerful work with us. Ben. Thank you. Uh, good evening. Um, so as you just heard, uh, my name is Benjamin Schwartz and I teach a class on comics and visual storytelling here in the Narrative Medicine program. And the only reason I have any credibility teaching a class like that is because of our uh, very special guest speaker tonight, Bob Mankoff, uh, who we are very fortunate to have. Uh, Bob is truly one of those people that needs no introduction, but as long as I'm up here, I'll uh, explain a little bit about why he is a, a claimed humorist and uh, a, true, a true legend in the cartooning world. Um, Bob began his cartooning career in the mid-1970s, uh, and since that time, he's been delighting magazine readers all around the world with his uh, insightful and absurd and uh, absurdly insightful cartoons. Uh, all delivered in his uh, trademark pointillistic art style. Uh, means he uses a lot of little dots. Um, in the early 90s, Bob added entrepreneur to his resume when he created the Cartoon Bank, a, an uh, online cartoon licensing business designed to really help support his fellow freelance cartoonists by giving them new opportunities to find financial independence. Um, it was such a success that it was soon bought up by Condé Nast, the, uh, the publishing house, uh, and Bob was rewarded for all his talent, hard work, and vision with perhaps the most coveted job in all of the cartooning world. He was named cartoon editor of The New Yorker, a position that he used to uh, really be a champion for cartooning and comedy, and, uh, and also to give voice to a whole new generation of cartoonists. Uh, including 
inexplicably myself, uh, for which I will forever be grateful. Thank you, Bob. Um, this past April, after 20 years, Bob retired from that position, uh, took a well-earned retirement, uh, and in typical Bob fashion, that retirement lasted all of two days. Uh, by, the, by the end of his first weekend uh, off, he had announced that he was moving on to his next challenge, cartoon and humor editor at Esquire. Uh, and not only that, separate to that, he was also starting a new uh, tech startup called Botnik, uh, which is doing exciting work looking at the intersection between artificial intelligence and artificial stupidity. Um, so, uh, speaking personally for a moment, uh, I consider it a tremendous privilege that I get to call Bob both my friend and my mentor. Uh, I always, always learn something from Bob whenever we speak, uh, be that about the craft of cartooning, the art of comedy, the science and psychology of humor, or randomly enough, uh, the perfect form for an NBA three-pointer, which he is uh, disturbingly good at. Um, I don't know if he's going to break out his jump shot tonight, uh, but I am excited that uh, we are all going to be able to learn from him today. Um, as he shares his perspective on humor, illness, and wellness. And I, I know that we are in for a treat, so I won't delay it any further. Uh, please join me in giving a warm welcome to our very special guest, Mr. Bob Mancock. Whoa, this, this is a good-looking crowd. You know, not every crowd I talk to is this good-looking. We're going to take a selfie. <laughs> very, very high standard. Uh, I'm delighted to be here. Uh, uh, and, you know, one of the things I'm proudest of is actually Ben, because Ben was going to be a doctor. And I've often considered it my, one of my main uh, purposes in life to prevent one Jewish kid from either becoming a doctor or a lawyer or an accountant. And, and with Ben, I was able to do that. And, and, you know, and we're going to talk about humor today and, and the intersection of humor and, and health. And you know, humor can be a force for good or evil. Now, I've chosen evil. That's just me. You have your own choice. <laughs> Some of these are actually jokes. Uh, Okay, so we're looking here, and it, you know, I just take two kind. You know, this whole thing about humor is in Proverbs: a joyful heart is good medicine, but a crushed spirit dries up the bones. And this is, you know, that that that, that, that laughter is the best medicine. But for what year? You know what I'm saying? Like 2500 BC? Not really. It's not bad. I mean, another way to look at it is, yeah, if it's the best medicine here, like, what's the next best medicine? <laughs> now, I know there are a lot of doctors in the audience. I say, I'm from New York. I don't, I don't really need a microphone. Okay, now, if, you, if, if you're looking at me over here, you're seeing, uh, is that jaundice? <laughs> See what I'm saying? It's a little yellow, right? Now, another, another meaning of jaundice is that a state of feeling in which views are prejudiced or judgment is distorted with envy or resentment. Now, if you're a cartoonist, if you're a humorist, 
uh, everything bad is good. So the way we deal with medicine, the way we deal with law, the way we deal with government is by making fun of it. And certainly that's what I do in my cartoons. And this came out of actual experience, one of my cartoons. Well, yes, it's a routine procedure if you routinely have someone slice open your body with sharp instruments and then fiddle with your inside. Now, I came up with this cartoon after I had this, this, this prostate green light operation, and the guy said it's a routine. It was routine for him. He was having lunch when I woke up, so it was absolutely, but not so much for me. So one of these things a cartoon is, of course, it's a joke in a way, but it's trying to teach a kind of empathy here, saying, and I think this is what you actually do in narrative medicine, there's one thing to, uh, to go formulaically through it, but you don't experience it. Here's another cartoon of mine. I have no objection to alternative medicine as long as traditional medical fees are scrupulously made down. Uh, uh, uh-oh, your, your, your coverage doesn't seem to include illness. <laughs> Uh, and, of course, it's not just me who's drawn this here. Here are some other cartoonists, David Cypress. We're running a little behind, so I'd like each of you to ask yourself, am I really that sick, or would I just be wasting the doctor's valuable time? Oh, whoa, way too much information. <laughs> You know, we really say to Dr. we really want information. We want you to unburden yourself, but really, you know, it's running a little short here. And here, uh, next an example of the very same procedure when done correctly. <laughs> okay, so we do make fun of doctors, and we do make fun of lawyers, and I always consider it like a twofer if we can get both. I don't feel quite as fulfilled when I've saved a lawyer. <laughs> Give it to me straight, Doc. How long do I have to ignore your advice? <laughs> Be honest, how much are you exercising? Yes, your doctor of taking a pill to solve all your problems is right for you. Uh, but this is me. But if you cure my hypochondria, I won't have any hobbies. <laughs> okay, so there was supposed to be a book on sale, but it's not. But that's okay. The book will eventually be on sale. And this is uh, uh, a book I wrote. And it has to do, and if you did, if you were able to buy this book, I would have signed it for you. I would have made it marginally more valuable. And if I did so, I would have wanted it back. <laughs> okay, so it's based on this cartoon of mine, which is called No Thursdays Out, How About Never is Never Good Feel. So as Ben knows now, a professional cartoonist does uh, uh, 10, 15 cartoons every week. And that it's an amateur when, uh, when, uh, when someone comes to you and say, I have an idea for a cartoon. And I actually have an apropos medical story about that. I was at my cardiologist because I have arrhythmia, and that is a good person to go to rather than a plumber. And so I went to the cardiologist, and of course they want to put you at your ease because they're probably taking a course in narrow medicine. <laughs> so they ask you, like, ah, what do you do for a living? And I said, well, I'm the cartoon editor of the New Yorker magazine, and he shuts off all the machines. He says, you know, I have an idea for a cartoon. <laughs> and I said, that's great. I got an idea for a bypass. <laughs> uh, now, unfortunately, it's not in the, it's not in the bookstores, so I'm going to save you 19.95 here. There you go. That's the whole book. <laughs> 
Now, here's an interesting part of the book. Now, the book actually is a book, but here, here is where I'm going to sort of read this to you. And I have the two cartoons here, which I did. Well, it looks like a paper cut, but lots of deaths to make sure. Nothing serious, Bob, just a case of the 40s. And the reason I'm so concerned with my health is I'll read to you, you know, what my mother. My mother, actually, I won't read the whole thing. It's too boring, but let, let's put it this way. My mother always wanted to make sure I was alive. <laughs> and she would put a mirror up to my when I was sleeping, you know, to, to make, just make sure I was still there, you know, fogging it up. And even to this day, I sometimes do that myself. <laughs> now, my mother lived to be 93, and she was in robust ill health her entire life. <laughs> and I'm 73, really not too bad. And this is, this is interesting. You do a thousand cartoons, and then one, that one takes off. So this is... Uh, I'm in the Yale Book of Quotations, right next to that other famous humorous mouth says, um. <laughs> And over here, I uh, can't see it, but it says U.S. 1944. So uh, when the book came out, I was 70. And so I want to think of three jokes about being 70. And in a way, look at these jokes. They actually are ways of coping. They do a kind of coping. So I said, yeah, I'm, I'm 70. The, the good news is it could be worse. The bad news is, it will be. <laughs> I'm 70. The good news is, 70 is the new 50. The bad news is, dead is not the new alive. <laughs> and when you're 70 and a guy, you wake up stiff everywhere but where you want to be. So that's it. So, so now I've so now seen that other cartoon, I have a case of the 40s, and I have, now I have a case of the 70s. And Ben, so Ben would come in and show me cartoons. <laughs> you know, for an exam or everything. But I would say, Ben, I've got a case of the 70s. What's the mortality on that? I wanted to know. I wanted to know. And that's the way a comic looks at everything. You know, I've got a case of the 70s. How many people... I mean, let's say you have a case in the 70s, and you say something like, in a comic mind, you say, well, the 70s, like, oh, that's a 15% mortality. Well, if you went to a doctor and you said, well, you have a 15% mortality, that's not good. Uh, okay, laugh for the health of it. Is that true? Let's watch this. <laughs> That's my first wife. <laughs> Why people laugh at that, I never have any idea what they do. Of course it's not. That's the other thing. If you're going to be funny, don't bother to tell the truth. Okay, but that's interesting because that's a pretty robust response, right? Uh, you know, maybe a little bit over the top, right? And, uh, you know, let's, I want to give you a little, bit of, a little bit of the history of that response. You know, that's sort of a very deep, primitive response. Let's see how far back it goes. We had listened to animals playing. We had heard what appeared to be the sounds of laughter. We decided to tickle some animals. And we realized that we had to look at the sounds at a very different register than we can hear. We could tickle animals and generate a lot of vocal activity that appears to be laughter. 
These animals would begin to enjoy our company and they would start to play with our hands and wherever we would put our hands, they would follow us. And when we tested these animals to ask whether they were enjoying this kind of activity, the unambiguous answer was yes. That guy needs a date. I think the more remarkable finding is that he has talking rats. But actually, it is actually interesting. It shows that this kind of physiological response, this rapid breathing to relieve tension or sort of this mock aggression, and you can see it in chimpanzees. Oh, look. So they have this laughter, but... It's coming. Here it comes, Alfie. Here it comes. Here it comes, Alfie. <laughs> well, that's really interesting. I mean, that's pretty much just like a kid, right? And that's really weird, too, because one of the, well, one of the things is it's a kind of mock aggression, right? And clearly the laughter, the breathing. Now, the, breath, the breathing in, in chimps and primates is, is in and out. <laughs> that's why it sounds like that. Now, the interesting thing, all our laughter is on the exhale. And that's why it can be used in speech, because it's just like speech. It's on the exhale. Now we'll go up the, the, the chain a little bit. This isn't laughter, but this is sort of humor in its own way. This is a daddy chimp playing with his kid. Come on, play. Are you bopping him on the head? And that's and what the, the, the face that the little chimp is making is called the play face. It's the play mode that they're in. So once again, it's mock aggression. Mock aggression. And so this is also, this is, this is the antecedents of our smile. But once again, it's a kind of mashing up of both anxiety and tension and relief. And now the final stage, which will tell you anything you really know about humor, is it actually a little kid. Mm -hmm. Watch out. So really, all you, all you have to know about it, America's Funniest Home Videos, everything yeah, is in, in that. But what's interesting there is that it's something a little wrong that the child is doing uh, as well. Uh, okay, now laughter. Now, we think this is a really good thing, but, you know, religion didn't think so. Laughter often gives birth to foul discourse, and foul discourse to actions still more foul. Often from words and laughter proceed railing and insult. And from railing and insult, blows and wounds, and from blows and wounds, slaughter and murder. <laughs> if then you should take good counsel for yourself, avoid not merely foul words and foul deeds or blows and wounds and murders, but unreasonable laughter itself. So, wow, that's heavy. And I'm, teach and I'm teaching at Fordham. So, <laughs> look, at this, look at this. This is Lord Chesterfield. This is advice to his son. Frequent and loud laughter is the characteristic of folly and ill manners, how low and unbecoming a thing laughter is, not to mention the disagreeable noise that it makes and the shocking distortion of the face that it can. I have never laughed in my life. <laughs> well, it's actually interesting. We think this is so crazy, and this is actually the norm. Laughter is sort of losing control. It is often involved. Uh, when we look at, when we look at, uh, well, this is, this is even crazier. This is a book from... Uh, uh, 1890, about laughter and smiling. The joyous smile of friendly recognition. That looks okay, right? Okay, ooh, the self-conceited smile, a smile of self-esteem. The sardonic sneer or furtive leer. Uh-oh, we're getting bad here. 
Okay, the insidious smile. Goodness gracious. Okay, the superlative laugh, the highest degree of laughter. So basically, when we, when we look at humor, one of the things we actually have to confront is that it's not all nice, right? It's not all nice. And uh, this guy Vassie was talking about, well, basically it's this, and that's what America's Funniest Home Videos are. That's what all these pranks are. And he went even so far to say that the only reason we laugh is because we tickle kids, and then, of course, that causes death. <laughs> People do die when they laugh. Alex Mitchell, a 50-year-old builder of King's Lynn, England, literally died laughing while he was watching an episode of The Goodies. After 20 minutes of continuous laughter, Mitchell finally collapsed on the sofa. And then there's this great, uh, uh, oh, and by the way, stand up people did <laughs> comedians die earlier, but this is this great bit. This is the world's deadliest joke by Monty Python. Okay, go. This man is Ernie Spooker, writer of jokes. In a few moments, he will have written the funniest joke in the world, and as a consequence, he will die laughing. <laughs> Now, I want you to know I could make this presentation funnier, and I'm choosing not to do that for the reason you've seen. Okay, but of course now everything is flipped around, right? Now from, so, and one of the things, and I teach a course uh, at Humor called Humor and Communications, and we are in a particular area, uh, era in which there's sort of a positive ideology completely of humor. We sort of see it as one thing. And on that side, it swings to this positive side where Humor is the best medicine, or a medicine, right? And there's the uh, Association uh, of Applied Humor Therapy. And so here, I'm going to... I know a lot about humor and health. I'm not going to bore you with all of that. If you have questions, I'll tell you about it. But here, really what I, what I want to tell you about is what the actual facts are in terms of what humor does. And to some extent, the facts are very limited by the kinds of experiments they've been able to do. And the experiments are actually fairly lame. They will they'll do an experiment. Well, does humor help with pain? Okay, now you're watching, you stick your hand in cold water, and now you're watching Saturday Night Live, and now you rate the amount of pain. But when you actually think about how humor might be used naturally, I've talked about Ben with this, I've talked about Donna, that's really not the way, but here are some of the facts. It actually, okay, so the most consistent thing is that we find that, well, yeah, humor, if you're, if you're laughing, you're, li you're likely to be an analgesic. But you want to know if you're cursing also. So you really have to choose 
really any, any strong emotion is going to distract you from humor. The effects of humor on, on immunity, well, some yes and some not. One of the problems is, see, I personally think it's a very valid, valid uh, uh, topic to research, but it's not like big farmers putting a lot of money <laughs> in looking at it. So there'll be a few, there'll be a few uh, you know, experiments showing you know, inconclusive results. So there's, no, so there's no evidence that laughter gives beneficial cardiovascular workout akin to physical exercise, even though you're breathing in and out. There's little evidence that people with greater sense of humor have less illness. Okay, high humor, people seem more satisfied with the help, although not objectively healthier. <laughs> high humor, people may actually die earlier due to unhealthy lifestyle and risk taking. So that is sort of sad, right? I guess. Uh, but on the other hand, a, a ray of light. <laughs> For the photographs are taken of 196 baseball players taken from 952 baseball register. 46 were still alive at the time of the study. Controlled for the year of the birth, body mass index, so and so and so, da da. Smile intensity, predicted longevity. <laughs> so uh, you, can, you can see where these are not the most rigorous studies. Uh, <laughs> But my, my own sense, my intuitive sense, is it's obvious that used correctly, there is a place for the intersection of humor and health. But it's not by, it's not, it, 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 it's both for physicians and for patients in being more human to each other and relating to each other. And it's very hard to sort of design those experiments, but it, as, as Ben and other people are showing, it's not very hard to live that life. Uh, so is laughter the best medicine? Uh, of course not, but it's the cheapest. <laughs> and let's continue the chemo to be on the safe side. Thank you very much. <laughs> uh, I'm happy if you actually want to know about humor medicine, I'm happy to think any questions. Got anything? Questions? Make one up. I'll give another lecture. She's just tossed it. You tell me who uh, judges the New York fashion contest. Well, I, I did. I'm the reason you lost. <laughs> but there are reasonable fees. Uh, I, well, actually, if you want to know, this is how the New York caption contest was judged, which I created. It was judged in this way. We got to five to 10,000 captions come in every week. There are not five to 10,000 different captions, and we had algorithms that sort of break down the groups of it. Then to all the people who entered the caption contest, we did crowdsourcing in which you can go up now, and that's something I work with people at the University of Wisconsin on to rate it unfunny, somewhat funny, and funny. And then all of the captions then got uh, a rating. Now, the interesting fact of all of that is just that judging humor makes it less funny. So that just by judging hundreds of captions, all of them sort of, sort of fall into somewhat funny. But it turns out that it was fairly reliable. I mean, it's simply this. If 10,000 people are rating them and they rate the captions, it's likely that another 1,000 people uh, would also do it. In terms of the kind of humor that all that crowdsourcing produces, it's sort of mediocre. But it's actually what people like. What people, what, what, 
people don't really like novelty. They like uh, uh, a little bit of novelty and a cocoon of familiarity. And that's a good thing for doctors to remember, too. Any other questions? Yeah. Now, see that we got him started now. Thank you so much for the presentation. It was wonderful. I'm, I'm actually a nurse, and we use humor all the time in nursing to kind of cope with what we see on the units and on the floors. And I've moved into a nurse practitioner role in palliative care. And so my question for you is, can death, dying, and suffering in some ways be humorous? And I want to say that. Just say, Not bad idea. So he's not suffering. So, so sorry. I'll just repeat. <coughs> um, um, it's death funny. It's death funny. What's the saying? Not only is it funny, but dying is easy. Comedy is hard. <laughs> that's the great. That's the great line of an actor. Yeah. Well, death. Let me put it this way: all bad is the source of all humor. The humor is in reaction to. To, to, to difficulty. Now, death itself, from a personal experience, as it's happening, I don't think that it would be very funny. But it, what it exposes is our mortality, our, our, our frailty, our, it, it's the contradiction of our, of our oversoul ex existential helplessness, and yet our courage to laugh. It's really that. Existentially, you know, it's like the Woody Allen thing uh, uh, from Manhattan. Everything you can do, everybody you know, everything you love is going to be gone in a very short time. Why bother? Okay? And one of the reasons we do bother is because of laughter. Because for laughter, laughter, I think, is a triumph for us. Now, for me, that triumph came not over death, but over a teacher at Syracuse. <laughs> I was a terrible student in the 60s, and I never went to class. And, and so uh, this is a sociology class. I didn't go to any classes. The first class, find out when the final is, stay up all night, take drugs, read the book, go take the thing. And then I go into the class, and I come in late, and I sit down, and the teacher looms over me because I'm like the last person in there and says, who the hell are you? Because <laughs> you've never seen me. And I looked up at him and said, you know, I could very well ask you the same question. <laughs> and I've got to say that was so great, and but that's true. That that that's true. That's a little bit what I mean because for 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 many people, I think that would be like a kind of death, like you're going to be eliminated. You you are nothing, and I think the ability to uh, the ability to joke, to, even in the most severe situations, and of course you do find it in hospitals, you do find it in wartime, you do find it in the most stressful situations. And I think, I think it's, I, I don't think it, to an outside person it sounds inappropriate, but it is one of the ways that, it, that we cope. Also, chafing is funny, not just death. <laughs> Even chafing can be funny, really. It's not, it's not on the same ballpark. You have another question, yeah? Do you think you are born with a sense of humor, or do you develop a sense of humor? I, I, I was talking about this with, with Donna and with Ben. Congenitally, in terms of the studies, you're, you're sort of either somber or jolly. Let's put it that way. 
In other words, there are people who laugh very easily or not laugh very easily. In terms of your sense of humor and stuff, you can be very somber and sort of have a sense of humor, or you could be very dry. And that seems to be primarily environmental in that, you know, the, 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 the identical twin studies show that, that, that identical twins raised apart in terms of this congenital, they will laugh the same, but what the, their taste and everything will be different. But I do think that for you to have become a comic, to be funny for money, for that kind of thing, I think it starts early, and it, it, I, think, I think if you look at it historically, it starts with some sort of problems that, that you are dealing with in a family, that you are negotiating with humor. I don't think that's the case anymore because I think people simply learn to be funny now from YouTube. <laughs> in other words, it becomes a skill. It becomes something that, oh, and there's two things. It becomes a skill and it becomes money. And so once there's money involved, and now since, since, since comedy and since humor is actually an industry, then I think people learn it. So I think it changes over time. So you educate medical students in the area of, of comedy, yeah. So I'm curious, how do you um, encourage medical students to make a distinction, if you do, between humor for the sake of humor, as in view of the cartoon about yeah. health and death, and actually um, diminishing or making them think a little harder about using humor about a specific patient? for their own stress relief, the so-called gallows humor and other things that occur with the hidden curriculum and things related to that. Yeah, the thing that I was talking to Ben about this, and that's a very tricky topic in a hierarchical situation in a different power dynamic to use humor in that particular. But, you know, obviously you'd be self-deprecating, you'd be alert to the cues. See, as I was saying to Ben and Donna, we basically move in two, two different uh, sort of bistable uh, emotional states. One, is, one of them is, is sort of the serious state. That's how we live most of our lives. You know, it's the playful state. So if you go to a cock, you'll be in a playful state. Now, when you're in, a, in an examination, you're in a very serious frame of mind. Everybody's in a serious frame of mind. So therefore, I think there is, first of all, you don't start with humor. You have to develop some other relationship to see is the person open to it. And, but what I say in my actual intuition is that since the dynamics are so different, you have to show you're open to humor and you have to try to introduce the person to a community of which, which not only has empathy, but has common experience with them. That, that community will deal in humor, because you've all had the common experience. So, you did, so a little bit that joke I made about it was a routine procedure for you, it's very hard for the doctor to make jokes about that routine. But for someone in that situation, so I'd say that doctors should be open to the resources available to introduce them into, those, into that community. That's the way it would be done. Yeah, you have a question over there. Um, excuse me. So, just a follow-up question on that. As a medical, current medical student, I think um, there's a little bit of uh, a schizophrenic relationship between bedside manner and professionalism, and I find that those come in conflict on the wards um, on occasion. Yeah. And so, I'm curious to hear from you uh, in your experience in the work you do. Yeah. Um, 
how much of building a common ground is uh, uh, maintaining separation appropriately, and how much of building common ground is allowing a little bit of vulnerability. And shock I think I, I think the athletic come from the patient. In other words, you don't initiate it, and so you're going to find in any situation that. Uh, it's not going to be the main device you'll be using. You know what I mean? Humor is not the main way we get through life. The question is, it's not the cake, it's the icing. So you always have to realize that, but still you want the icing. You don't want to completely remove the icing. So you use it when you can. So this is, the, this is a little bit why I joke around in this. It's not the best medicine. It's an adjunct. If we start to think of it, if we, if we start to have it try to do the heavy lifting that it can't, it, it distorts it, but it's all about being, uh, it's all about being human, whether you're talking just about stories or relating to people uh, in the way the, and, and I would think especially when you look about what's going to happen in the future with more and more medicine being algorithmically determined. I mean, I actually had a conversation at a dinner party yesterday and saying, you know, with, you know well, how, 25 years from now, when you are going to have the data, right? You're going to say, well, here's 5 million people who took this and took that and that, and now you're the, and now, and now you're the doctor essentially conveying the, the, the information, making sure the machine was plugged in. Doing that, well, more than ever then, so the whole thing may shift then, because your role as a doctor may start to become very different. Your role as a doctor may become almost totally narrative. Because look, try to really take it to an extreme end, which, doesn't, which is not too far-fetched. That here we have data of billions of people, just like the same data that's looking at your Netflix and everything, but, but, but what your pulse rate is, your blood level, everything that happened. And the million other people that had this thing. And that machine is going to spit out what this thing is and what the medications are, and it would be very unlikely at that point that you would say that it's wrong. But the person is not going to want the machine to explain to them the story of their life, that they, that they may be dying, that they have this prognosis, and that what can they do? The machine. See, that's what the machine is not going to be able to do. And I was talking to a doctor yesterday, and he was sort of, uh, he was a cardiologist, and he's saying, you know, it's weird we're, we're going through school and we're memorizing these millions of facts. And fairly soon, in some way, that is going to be obsolete. Uh, and so then I, so whether it's humor or narrative medicine, I think is going to become, you know, really important. Right. Yeah. Questions? My mother would be so proud. I'm almost a doctor. <laughs> I'm playing a doctor. Hi, thank you. Um, I just was wondering where your interest in humor and health and the intersection between humor and health began. When I got sick. <laughs> uh, well, it, it began in this way. I became interested in the psychology of humor. I, 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 was, I was in a, a, a program in experimental psychology, and I was on the, in, in 1973, and I was on the cusp of my PhD, but it became the world's longest cusp. <laughs> and I never made it out. 
But I did, but I had sort of the mental thing. I, I'm, I'm empirical, let's put it that way. And then I was always funny, and I drew, and I went to the high school of music and art, and whatever, and I became a cartoonist. And I, it was hard, but I succeeded. And then I went through this period of sort of 25 years being pretty successful as a cartoonist, but always in the back of my mind having this whole intellectual, what is going on? What is humor? What's happening? And once I got interested in that, and once I started teaching at the University of Michigan, of course, in the psychology of humor, it branched out into these areas. And one of the things is most people are just ignorant of how much, the research isn't great, but there's a lot of research, and there's a lot of interest, especially in the last 20 years, in what's called the positive emotions. And obviously, humor has a negative side, but its positive side is like many of the other positive emotions where the negive emotions narrow our field of vision. You know, when we're afraid, there's two choices. When we laugh, when we have a positive emotion, we're open to many things. So I started to get interested in, I guess started to read all about it, because uh, uh, although, <laughs> it's funny, I, I really was a, a bad or a student, or I wasn't a student, I didn't go to class, but, the, but, but the, uh, there's a thing called the, the Zagarnik effect, where once you stop doing something, that's what you do the rest of your life. So in a way, the fact that I was a bad student was an enormous benefit to me, because I didn't feel, I, I, as, as cartoon editor New Yorker, I had a lot of great assistants who went to Harvard, and they're great kids. But they were very satisfied with what they knew. They weren't curious kids. They weren't curious. They had made it. You know what I mean? And I always felt that. And so that just keeps branching out. And I'm just curious about everything. And I think that's the gift that any parent would give to children. Uh, to, uh, I mean, in a way, magazines have changed, even the New Yorker has changed. But the original conceit of the New Yorker, especially in the 70s, was that everything is interesting. Everything is interesting if you pay enough attention to it. Anyway, I feel that way about you. I hope I've made you feel that way too. Thank you.